some auto cards and other people want to work maybe again. But I'm just going to pass it on right now to Tony Goldstein, who is the editor of Canadian Jewish News. He will introduce the panelists, and we'll just get going. Great. Great. Everybody hear me all right? Great. So as, uh, as Bernie said, I'm Yoni Goldstein, the editor of the Canadian Jewish News. Um, very excited to be here today. I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation, and I hope everyone uh, in the audience here will also uh, participate in that conversation as we go. A little bit of an idea of what to expect. Uh, you'll be hearing from the three panelists, who I'll introduce in a second. They will each be giving a uh, 10 to 15 minute presentation followed by a question and answer um, uh, segment. I'll, I'm sure, have some questions to ask the panelists, and then we'll, as I said, look to you to guide us in terms of the things you want to talk about. So uh, let's, let's get to the panelists. And let's start over there with uh, Ed Prucci, a Toronto criminal defense lawyer. He serves as the justice columnist for the Toronto Sun newspaper. He's the CTV news legal analyst and the chief legal analyst for News Talk 1010 Radio. Uh, Ed is active on the boards and committees of many Jewish community organizations, including Hillel and UJA. Uh, now, to my right, Cynthia Levine Rasky, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Queen's University, author of several books and articles on critical whiteness studies, and her most recent work reflects her interest in Romani studies, uh, including Writing the Roma, which was published in 2016, and a Romani woman's anthology, Spectrum of the Blue Water, published this year. Uh, she's also written for Now Magazine, and as a public sociologist, she's involved with many community organizations, including the Toronto Roma Community Center, and she co-leads Canada's first chapter of the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom. And finally, Adir Craftman in the middle here, the Manager of Communications and Media Relations at the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, otherwise known as CJA. Originally from Chadera, Israel, uh, Adir comes to CJA uh, after being the Associate Director for Advocacy and Strategic Communications at Hillel, Ontario, where he worked with students at nine different universities. He's a uh, proud alum of U of T, where he studied uh, uh, science and international relations and computer science and was the founder of the local Israel on Campus Club. Let's give a round of applause to our panelists. Okay, shall we start? Sure, yeah. thank you very much and thank you to uh, Mosaic Institute for inviting me to do this talk and for all of you to be being here. I'm just going to exit this one and bring up my own. I just have a few slides here. I did a bit of research for this. Let's uh, come on over there. Um, all right. So, so let, let me let me just start here, and then I'll. Uh, uh, so, we were asked to reply to a few questions. What are the dominant narratives in the Canadian Jewish community? What are there also dissenting narratives in the Canadian Jewish community? What shapes these various narratives? And are certain narratives or in our perspectives stifled within the Canadian Jewish community? And what are the effects of this? So I'm going to be using the words of the, the, these words, of the words of the program, in order to structure my remarks. Uh, and, but I'm going to start off with telling you a little bit about myself. And I do that to give you some context. And I'm going to make a point that I'm going to be coming back to. So I'll tell you just a wee bit about my own Jewish identity. And, um, so I am secular, or the word I would use is probably secular. This is not the word that's used in a research and a poll opinion. Um, 
a public opinion poll firm. That, uh, they don't use secular, they use word non-religious. So I'll get back to that. But I'm secular or non-religious Jew. I'm not affiliated with any movement or congregation, but I love to pray. I um, lead seders. I learned how to lead a seder and learned how to read, lead uh, Shabbat services. And there's something really, I do that because there's something really ineffable uh, about participating in that ancient practice as a Jew. The point is I don't fit into a category. Uh, and I tell you this to indicate the breadth of Jewish identities and the way that the category of non-religious uh, does not mean a detachment from Judaism or from Jewish practice. So I'll come back to that. Another little note here is my research area is not Jewish studies. I come to this as what I call a positively identified Jew as a student of these issues and as an individual Jewish woman, a mother, a writer, and an educator. The point I'm gonna be making is to use these words, dissenting narratives range in content and intensity. If they are stifled by dominant narratives, it further alienates many Jewish individuals of whom there is a large and growing number whose sense of attachment to the Jewish community is already weak. It means a loss to Jewish organizations that lose a perspective source of strength and renewal. So when I was thinking about this, I uh, was thinking about the dissent and how I would talk about dissent. And um, I'm dividing it into two bits. One I call soft dissent and the other one I call hard dissent. And for soft dissent, I, uh, I came across a um, piece of research by the Pew Research Center. It did, they do public opinion polling and social science research. And it's very American-based, and they talk about Jews in the US. For our purposes, we'll assume that there's some degree of parallel. This comes out in 2013. And here are some of their findings. I have to be very selective. So they say, on the one hand, American Jews overwhelmingly say they are proud to be Jewish and have a strong sense of belonging to the Jewish people. But Jewish identity is changing in America where one in five, that's 22%, now describe themselves as having no religion. Uh, this is particularly the case with millennials, uh, people born after 1980. Uh, of, um, so 68% of those Jews, of millennials, identify as Jews by religion, but 32% describe themselves as having no religion and identify as Jewish on the basis of ancestry, ethnicity, or culture. The, this group are much less connected to Jewish organizations. Only 4% of them belong to synagogues. Only 4% of them uh, have membership in other Jewish organizations other than synagogues, 4%. Um, Two-thirds of Jews of no religion say they are not raising their children Jewish or partially Jewish. For those who've been married since 2000, nearly six in 10 have a non-Jewish spouse. So is any of this surprising? Probably not, why? Because I assume you know lots of Jews just like this and um, that many Jews like this are, are um, in your own families or people close to you. But then it goes on, so here are some of these, these results. And then it goes into other kinds of questions with this survey. It looks at attitudes towards Israel and I'll, I'll summarize some of these too. 
Overall, about seven in 10 Jews surveyed say they feel either um, uh, yep, very attached or somewhat attached to Israel at 69% together, essentially unchanged to, since 2000, 2001. At the same time, many American Jews express reservations about Israel's approach to the peace process. Just 17% of American Jews think the continued building of settlements in the West Bank is helpful to Israel's security. 44% say that settlement construction hurts Israel's own security interests. Jews of no religion are considerably more skeptical of Israel's effort than are Jews by religion. Roughly one in five Jews of no religion, that's 21%, think the Israeli government is making a sincere effort, while 62% do not think this is the case. U.S. Jews of no religion are more likely than Jews by religion to say the settlements hurt the security of Israel. That's 56 versus 40%. About half or more of Reformed Jews, those of no denomination, college graduates and Democrats also say the continued building of settlements in the West Bank hurt Israel's security. And you can see this on this slide here. Um, I'm wondering if I could just... Oh, just, yeah, uh, or um, maybe I can, I don't know whether I can raise it. Uh, so I just took a screenshot from that page, but what you'll see is that the only Jews who disagree, the only groups of Jews who disagree with that are um, religious Jews and Republicans, but virtually in every other case here, um, uh, uh, that segment of Jews uh, say that, uh, settlements are more likely to say that settlements hurt the security of Israel, with those two exceptions. So this is a nice segue to what I call hard dissent. This one is uh, concerns forms of Jewish activism against the state of Israel. It, this is controversial, um, and I'm not necessarily asserting my own opinion on these complex issues. I don't represent an organization's perspective. I present this for your consideration because I admire uh, the way that Jewish customs support vigorous dialogue and the way that Bernie Farber uh, talked about in the introduction. I admire that and, and how we have respect for informed opinion, opinions. So what does hard dissent look like? So we're looking at things like the BDS movement. We're looking at non-Zionism. We're looking at anti-Zionism. We're looking at activism in support of Palestinians. And all of these exist as robust and dissenting narratives in the Canadian Jewish community. I have one example, it's also in the States, uh, and I just picked this out because it was, uh, it occurred very recently. APAC met in Washington, D.C. on March 26th, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. I think there were 18,000 delegates there. I think that was the largest in its history. And there was a protest here that you can see one image by a group called If Not Now. Uh, and they, um, in a interview in Huffington Post, Yona Lieberman, who's a co-founder, said that it was the biggest ever Jewish-led protest of APAC. She said over a thousand people took part, and she says, and they declare Jews won't be free until Palestinians are free. Uh, and I watched a video in which, uh, if not now, members uh, got access to the convention and unfurled two large banners uh, from a mezzanine and then were quickly escorted out by security. If not now, by the way, I, I'm, it might be familiar to you, is from um, uh, that famous uh, saying by Hillel, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? 
But if I am for myself only, what am I? And if not now, when? So there are many groups uh, who are associated with this perspective. Here's a few of them. I'm glossing over this, and I know that that is problematic. There's probably more differences among them than similarities in many respects. Um, and uh, so I recognize that limitation. Uh, I don't have time to go into all of them. I'm just going to read uh, the very um, abbreviated mandate from two of them only. The Independent Jewish Voices Canada says they are a group of Jews in Canada who share a commitment to social justice and the universal applicability of human rights. We come together in the belief that opinion within the Jewish population of this country is not reflected by those organizations that claim to represent Canadian Jewish communities. And Jewish Voice for Peace opposes anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim, and anti-Arab bigotry and oppression. JVP seeks an end to the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. And there are countless bloggers and journalists and filmmakers and activists and artists uh, uh, out there, but I don't have time to go into that. I also have one other um, very interesting, well, very disturbing image here uh, taken on, I think, March 19th of this year at Nathan Phillips Square. This is a JDL uh, member arm in arm with a Soldier of Odin uh, member. Uh, I, I, um, I'll get back to that if there's any question about it at the end. Uh, what, the, what I think that this um, implies and why this is justification perhaps for hard dissent. So what are some consequences for stifling these uh, dissenting narratives? I've got two examples, again just taken from something recently. So we have Israel's new travel ban uh, passed by the Knesset on March 6, 2017, and this is a ban that, that bans entry to foreigners who publicly call for boycotting the Jewish state or its settlements, exclusion in a very direct and literal uh, manner. Three weeks after the travel ban, the Amcha initiative, I believe I'm pronouncing it right, um, it, it means uh, for those of us who aren't necessarily uh, familiar with Hebrew, like myself, it, has, it means uh, your people or grassroots or ordinary people. The Amcha initiative, uh, their mandate is to investigate, document, educate about and combat anti-Semitic behavior on colleges and universities. They developed uh, a series of interactive maps, one of them you see here, and, and these maps are designed to give viewers what it says was the ability to visually understand the distribution and geographical patterns of anti-Semitic activity on campuses. So this is an academic boycotters map. It's, it shows a distribution of faculty endorsing the academic boycott of Israel. So these are people who this organization feel warrants surveillance and sanctions and exclusion from the Jewish community because of that individual's attachment, um, despite the individual's attachment to Jewish life. On their site, on the Amcha Initiative site, it says clearly and very succinctly, the BDS movement is anti-Semitic. So what are the costs for these Jews who diverge from this dominant Jewish narrative? So these are a group um, and a growing number of Jews who cannot reconcile Israel as a Jewish state to which we fled as an oppressed people with Israel as a Jewish state that they believe condones the oppression of others. So we've gone from Israel, nation for the oppressed, to Israel, an oppressor nation. 
These are the dissenting narratives that are stifled in the Jewish community today. These are the 22% of non-religious Jews who identify by culture, ethnicity, or ancestry, but who have been lost to the Jewish community. These are young, progressive Jews who are most likely to turn away, not because they reject Judaism or Jewish life, but because they are rejected by the Jewish community. They are defined as a danger, as outsider, as pariah, as persons whose interests are seen as incommensurable with what is imagined to be a common Jewish cause. And they're not just young Jews, they're Jews of all ages who take pride in our tradition of according respect to the stranger. We just finished with Passover and, and this was spoken there. Because we were the stranger and how tragic is it that we now estrange a segment of our own people. But Jews have always been the champion of human rights. We have always been leaders in campaigns to ensure human dignity until now, until it comes to our own tolerance for the rights of Palestinians and Jews who stand up for them. To return to a remark from Independent Jewish Voices Canada, because it, 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 there's a link here, they say, we hereby reclaim the tradition of Jewish support for universal freedoms human rights, and social justice. It's inherent in Judaism. Ironically, progressive Jews' commitment to social justice for all people is inspired by the very Judaism that now stifles the dissenting narratives in its midst. I was looking at my notes yesterday and I came across a story in Haaretz. Um, President Rivlin, this is the, uh, the headline, President Rivlin says, seeing every criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism is, quote, fundamentally wrong, dangerous. Uh, and he was speaking at a Holocaust Remembrance Day ceremony. And he says, I just excerpted a couple of, and then I'm gonna wrap up a couple of uh, his remarks. He says, the Jewish people was not born at Auschwitz. It was not fear that kept us going through 2000 years of exile. It was our spiritual assets, our shared creativity. Externally, this approach, this approach equating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism damages our ability to develop relations with the nations of the world and with our critics from a safe place appropriate for dialogue. And he goes, he goes on, we cannot remain silent in the face of horrors being committed far away from us and certainly those happening just across the border. Maintaining one's humanity, this is the immense courage bequeathed to us by the victims and by you, the survivors of the Shoah in actions for the sake of others. So in conclusion, I'll just say that by stifling hard dissent by Jews, the Jewish community is losing many non-religious, educated, principled young Jews. They are not anti-Semitic, they are not self-hating, they identify as Jewish, they are proud Jews. Some, maybe many, practice Jewish traditions and customs. They might never think of joining Sija or reading Canadian Jewish news, uh, and, and apologies to, uh, and, uh, um, uh, no uh, exceptions, all right, right exceptions taken here. Uh -huh. uh, but, they are, but they are part of the community. But they are shunned by many Jews and by dominant Jewish organizations. To avoid the pain of exclusion by their own people, they turn away. They have nothing to do with Jewish organizations. They find community and belongingness elsewhere. In my last remark, instead of alienating them, it's incumbent upon leaders of Jewish organizations to ask themselves how they might turn this around by extending a hand, by opening a door, by giving a minute or two to hear dissenting narratives of the kind that are, after all, 
wholly consistent with Jewish values. Thank you. Thank you, Cynthia. Uh, Adir, will you go next? Sure. Um, okay. Everybody hear me? So I was asked to talk about the role of dissent within the Jewish community. And uh, I'm going to talk about it from the uh, communal um, perspective where there are two types of uh, dissenters, uh, the internal uh, and uh, the external. So I, I started with the, with the idea of the big tent. Um, we often hear this word being tossed around all the time, the big tent. What does it mean? How do we make it bigger? Who is inside the tent? Who is outside the tent? Uh, and how do we have a Jewish community uh, big tent? For me, the big tent means trying to accommodate as many diverse opinions and positions as possible with the understanding that there is an underlying value system or values consensus that binds us all together. Jewish communities in general, and our community here in uh, Canada in particular, uh, is marvelously diverse. Uh, we have Ashkenazi, Sephardi, and Mizrahi Jews. We have South American and Indian Jews. We have the ultra-Orthodox, humanist, and everything in between. And we, we enjoy a plethora of opinions on all issues, including Israel, um, spanning a wide political uh, spectrum. This diversity uh, is healthy and important. Their role in our community, uh, in our communal discourse, is also important. Jews have a long tradition of intellectual uh, vibrancy, with debates between rabbis spanning throughout the ages. Our community has always promoted critical thinking, and sure, there are those who prefer uh, an orthodoxy in opinion. But overall, as a community, we do encourage an, a range of views on controversial issues. For a real discussion uh, to take place. Uh, however, we must not fall into the human tendency to stereotype uh, without examination. We have, as humans, a tendency to fall into tribal thinking. Us and them, black and white, uh, everything is categorized, everything uh, is polarized. This uh, organization took this position, that organization took that position, uh, so they must be like all other, uh, so they must be on the same, in the same way or in the same political space for all other uh, positions, they're either too left or they're too right, uh, and, uh, and that makes me not want to engage uh, with them. For sincere critical discourse uh, to take place, I argue, uh, it is critical that we uh, do away with the categorizations and learn um, more about the spectrum of opinions and spectrum of positions that different organizations take before um, deciding whether to engage uh, with them or not. Uh, I'm often asked about the role of dissent within the mainstream Jewish community. So what do I mean by mainstream? I mean that, you, that if you can put together something as big as the Walk with Israel event, uh, which tens of thousands uh, of community members participate, if you have a strong, friendly relationship uh, with government, uh, that you have the ability to uh, reach a large segment of Canadian Jews, that, that uh, makes you uh, mainstream. And then I'm asked, so how can UJA, uh, the United Jewish Appeal, or CJA claim to represent me? I disagree with you on this uh, issue or, or another issue. So it's important, I think, to understand what CJA is. CJA stands for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Uh, officially, we are the advocacy agent of the Jewish Federations of Canada. This means that we advocate for the interests of all Canadian Jews that are affiliated with their local federations. And this is a really important detail. So the UJA is a large umbrella. 
uh, and it hosts uh, so, uh, many so social service uh, agencies, and our job at CJA is to uh, represent their interests. And these uh, interests and issues span uh, everything from uh, promoting trade between Canada and Israel, um, pushing for more affordable housing and fighting poverty, um, transgender rights, uh, security, community security, uh, and fighting anti-Semitism, uh, accessibility to kosher food, uh, and more. And how do we do that? So in order to claim, at least, to represent Jews that are affiliated with the local federations, we need to get as much input as we can from members of our community. We have annual surveys and focus groups, and we host community grassroots consultations across the country, which I have had the opportunity to uh, facilitate. So the way that would work is we invite um, members of the Jewish community in a particular city, and we uh, do an exercise that was created by Google, um, and they write everything that they want uh, CJO to advocate for on the board, and together they uh, dilute the, uh, the ideas until they choose one or two priorities, and that those are the priorities um, in the grand scheme of things that are uh, uh, the priorities for, for CJO for that year. Uh, in addition, there are CJA local partnership councils uh, in most cities and many different action groups and task forces uh, that deal with specific issues. For example, we have an affordable education task force, uh, community partnerships that looks at the relationship between the Jewish uh, and non-Jewish communities, particularly the Muslim community, uh, and LGBTQ council, advisory council, uh, and more. Um, now, it's impossible for any organization uh, or any community to represent all views. Uh, and I know that the CJN had um, this question uh, put to them a few months ago. Uh, I heard a really great uh, interview on TRAFE where um, the question was, you know, will the, uh, will the CJN publish these ideas or these ideas? And I think that when you are uh, appealing to, to such a large swath of, uh, or segment of the community, there will always be someone that in, with the next step, out, just outside uh, where your big uh, tent lies. And that's the same for uh, CJA uh, and UJA. So uh, in CJA's government relations and public affairs uh, work, we are almost never the only Jewish voice around the table. And quite often there are disagreements, uh, and that's uh, okay. There's a free market um, for uh, ideas. Uh, now, if there are disagreements, most of them uh, uh, happen um, privately within the confines of, of the community. That includes, um, like I said, conversations in our boards, um, uh, in writing, uh, in meetings with community professionals, uh, or, in, or in public debates. Uh, we recently had a debate uh, by Inat Wolf, a former member of uh, Knesset, and Professor Avi Bell uh, on the issue of uh, settlements uh, and if they are indeed a threat to Israel's security or if they are vital to Israel's security. Um, and uh, members of the community had the opportunity to uh, to uh, participate and provide their, uh, their opinion on, on the matter. Um, and this was really similar to what I experienced when I worked on campus. So when I directed Hillel Ontario's advocacy efforts, uh, I worked on issues ranging from uh, BDS uh, to student festivals taking place on Yom Kippur. And there were uh, always students who agreed and always students that didn't agree with the work that we were doing. But our position was that we needed to uh, appeal to uh, as many students as we can and find the consensus or the near consensus uh, issues. Um, that's why we uh, had, for example, you know, um, opposing uh, 
movie nights or uh, an intra-Jewish dialogue uh, to facilitate a conversation between Zionist and non-Zionist or anti-Zionist um, Jewish students. Um, and I'll, I'll close with, uh, with this. Um, the way I see it is that there are two types of uh, dissenters. Um, there are those who uh, comment on the actions of the community or that uh, are, provide their criticism from the outside, and there are those who join uh, the fray, those who get involved, uh, who join our working groups, uh, who take leadership positions, or perhaps not take leadership positions, but start their own organizations and compete for support in the free marketplace of ideas. Um, and my strong recommendation to everyone would be to fall in the second category. Thank you. Thanks, Adir. All right, Ed, you're up. I thought it was going to be hard to, if I had to go first. So I was really happy when I saw that I was uh, on this side and ultimately going to be going last until I heard everybody else talk. And now I'm very concerned about how I can possibly uh, sort of add to this in, in a, a helpful fashion. But I think I, I want to step much higher up uh, in a much more generalized fashion. Uh, I think there's a lot of talk here about dissent. We started touching upon some very specific issues. And of course, the obvious elephant in the room, Israel, BDS, Zionism, anti-Zionism, and I'm sure we're going to have lots of questions and, uh, and debate upon that. But I don't think, and maybe I'm mistaken, but I don't think today the point was to have the discussion about picking a side and defending your side. Um, I wanted to have a general discussion about how dissent works within the Jewish uh, community and how we are, in my view, just a reflection of the broader community. That while it's, it's wonderful and special to be Jewish, when it comes to the question of how we deal with dissent, that ought to be something that we, we should be looking outside of our community as well to see what's going on there. So I want to start by telling you a story. And of course, we all come from our personal backgrounds. I'm a lawyer. When I was uh, a student in law school, uh, everybody needs an articling position. If you know that, you've got to do Court of Canada, which uh, is a pretty tough position to get. There's, uh, I don't know, I think 25 people across the country who ultimately get to article with the Supreme Court of Canada. If you get an interview, you're very fortunate. I was interviewed by a number of justices, one of whom at the time was Justice Leroux Dubay, which if you're not a lawyer, might not mean anything to you, but Claire Leroux Dubay was uh, far and away uh, one of the most prolific dissenting opinions on the Supreme Court in history, probably the most uh, dissenting judge. In fact, her moniker, what people called her, was the great dissenter, because almost inevitably, if there were eight judges saying one thing and there was a dissent, it was always Leroux Dubay. And she often led the dissent if she was able to sort of pull aside a couple of other judges and peel them off of the majority, she would write the dissent time and time again. Mm -hmm. Very rarely was she in the majority. She always took an opposing view. Uh, what's interesting is if you study what has happened in law since Lura Dubay, she hasn't been on the court for, for quite a number of years, many of her dissents now form a clear line, a clear basis towards what the majority now is. So there's a clear line between what this person who at the time everyone thought was, I'm not going to say crazy, but certainly not within the mainstream of judicial legal opinion, and yet not that long later, a generation later perhaps, many of her judgments have ultimately formed the foundation for a case law that has come through today. So I walk into LaRue Dubay's office after, after having interviewed with a number of other, I guess, conventional justices, if we can call it that way, uh, justices who were more frequently in the majority and writing majority opinions. Uh, and she opens up with a couple of questions to me, and she's speaking in French, which was very off-putting to me because I don't particularly speak French all that well. Um, I answered her in English because I understood French well enough to at least get the gist of the question, but certainly didn't feel that I could answer uh, in English. And she stopped finally, switched to English, and said, why didn't you write on your resume that you were bilingual? 
to which I responded, well, respectfully, Madam Justice, I'm not bilingual. That's why I'm answering you in English. I speak French well enough to sort of maybe understand your questions. Uh, and I reflected upon that. The interview sort of went downhill from there. Needless to say, I didn't get the job. Uh, but I reflected on that many years later and felt, I think I have the confidence to say it now, mostly because she's off the bench, I'll never see Justice Leroy Dubay, uh, and it won't impact uh, me in the way that it would have back then. But she did that intentionally, in my view, to make me feel uncomfortable. That was the point. She knew perfectly well I didn't write bilingual because I'm not bilingual. When she asked the first question I responded in English, it would be apparent to a, a jurist of her intelligence, and she's an extraordinarily intelligent human being who I, I had and still have tremendous respect for. Uh, she knew that it would put me on my heels, and yet she did that precisely to do that. And so when we talk about dissent, while I have great respect for the concept of dissent and for even the the tachlis, as they say in Yiddish, the, the uh, I'm trying to think of a good translation for that, but the meat, the rationale, the reason for dissent, I'm very much opposed to the concept of dissenting just for the sake of being the dissenter, right? For the concept of, and I think so many people do this today, both in and out of the Jewish community, which is to say, that's what mainstream thinking is. Well, if that's mainstream, I have to do something else, right? If the mainstream Jewish community takes position X, then I'm gonna take position Y. And so much of what I see today, outside and inside of the Jewish community, is about teams. Teams in a very bad way, where we say, I'm a Democrat, or I'm a Republican, or I'm uh, an Orthodox Jew, or I'm a Reformed Jew. And as a result of putting ourselves in those silos and picking our team and naming that team, that now comes with an enormous amount of baggage that we drag with us that says the team, and not me with my own critical thinking skills, but the team decides what my position should be on any issue because the team has a position long before I even chose to be part of the team. And so I stop thinking, all I do is consult my handbook, whether that's the conservative handbook or the liberal handbook or the NDP handbook, and I say that's gotta be my answer. And I think that's very problematic, which is why I found it very interesting when Cynthia opened up and said, you don't fit into any category. You said that there's a category of secular, but you didn't like that term, you felt you didn't fit into a category. I think that's actually very beneficial, right? People will often ask me, it's the reason why I didn't open that way, but now, maybe it's worth having the discussion about where would I be categorized as. Um, I Most people would call me a modern Orthodox Jewish guy, right? I'm Shomer Shabbat, I went to a Jewish day school, I sit on boards of UJ Federation, the Hillel, so I'm in that respect as perhaps as mainstream as you can get. If you were to talk to people in my Orthodox synagogue where I go, uh, they would call me the shit disturber, right? Because I'm the guy who has a problem with some of the things that perhaps happen in Orthodox Judaism, with some of the things that my own synagogue takes, some of the positions that perhaps we resort to. Uh, similarly, while I, I may vote right wing, I can create problems within uh, small C conservative politics in some respects because I disagree on a lot of those fronts and a lot of those points. Uh, and, and so putting somebody, some, putting yourself into a category is limiting. And what, if we could take one thing from today's discussion, I would urge uh, an abandonment or at least a, a watering down of the team approach to thinking, right? And to be willing to think on your own and to say, even though I am a member of party X or even though I go to synagogue Y or even though I joined group uh, A, B, or C, that's not me. That's something that I joined or participate in or go to because of certain elements, but I don't have to subscribe uh, wholesale 100% to everything that that group does. Um, we talk about dissent, and I think Adir hinted at this too. D 
dissent, Jews practically invented dissent. And I think we should be very proud of that. I mean, the Talmud is effectively the world's greatest model for dissenting opinion. And this takes me back again to the, another Supreme Court justice, John Sapinka, who I interviewed with uh, moments before I interviewed with Lurie Dubay. When I walked into his office, sorry, it was Justice Yakubuchi. I'm confusing stories now, but Justice Yakubuchi posed the question to me, not in French, in English, and said to me, if, a, if, a, if an ox falls off a roof and lands upon a person passing by, who's responsible for the damage caused by that ox, the owner of the roof or the owner of the ox? And this is one of the classic questions that comes from Masechet Shoshanagach. In Talmud, it's a question that's debated back and forth. I frankly didn't remember the answer, but I knew, of course, where the question was coming from, and I sat sort of mouth open agape thinking, well, I thought this was going to be my worst interview of the day. As it turned out, the debate came later, and it got worse from there. But why am I being asked this by clearly an Italian non-Jewish justice? And then we spent 30 minutes talking about nothing but Talmud and about how enamored he was as an observer of the Jewish descent, of an observer of the Jewish debate. And he, all he wanted to talk about was Talmud. And obviously, he got to that point because my resume showed I went to a Jewish day school. And so that's where the question came up. So we should be very proud of the fact that, that we relish in dissent. We love dissent, right? We, we talk about the great debates between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, and Cynthia talked about the, the Haggadah already. In the Haggadah, which we just finished reading just a few weeks ago, a few days ago, feels I'm sort of way off because I'm still on Pesach time. Uh, but one of the things we do is you still take that sandwich. I don't know if anybody remembers this. You go after you've done your matzah, you've done your marah, now you combine the two together. You put marah on matzah, and what do we do? We read a section of the Haggadah that says, this is because that's the way Hillel used to do it. Now, the interesting thing is Hillel lost that debate in the Haggadah. There was a discussion about, are you supposed to put your matzah on, your marah on the matzah? Are you supposed to eat it plain? The rabbis go back and forth, and for whatever reason, decide you eat it plain, dip it with a little bit of haraset, whatever. Hillel lost, and yet the Haggadah says he was the loser. He was the dissenter. We're all going to do it anyway. I think that's a very, very powerful lesson that we read year after year, but we've kind of forgotten. And the tenor of debate, the tenor of discussion, it's not us as Jews who have done this. We're reflective of what's going on outside. When we see protesters at UC Berkeley setting fire to things to stop somebody who they disagree with from having a conversation at a university, we've lost our moral authority to have proper dissent. When we see a person like uh, Chadwick Moore, so he was a journalist who um, was vilified and threatened with death when he wrote a very unflattering column about Milo Yiannopoulos, who I don't know if any of you know, but I mean, Milo is, in my view, a very unflattering person in and of himself, but a very right-wing kind of demagogic kind of guy, uh, not somebody who I would politically uh, ascribe much to. But having said that, when this guy wrote an unflattering piece, he was threatened with death by people who felt it wasn't unflattering enough, that he shouldn't have covered this person at all, that he was giving him oxygen, that he was now part of the problem. And as it turned out, Chadwick Moore came out with a, a quote that I think is a real gem when you, when you start thinking about what has happened to dissent in modern society. He described his experience following the column by saying, it was easier for me to be openly gay in Iowa than to be a conservative in New York. So we talk about how the thesis, I think, in the Canadian experience is that 
if you're on the quote-unquote liberal, like again, as you small l liberal, the progressive side of the equation, that you're being pushed out, you're being restricted, you're being fenced away from modern uh, or, or from leading Canadian organizations, Canadian Jewish organizations. Well, we see very much a concern on the flip side as well. I'm not going to say exclusively, but we see a real concern on the flip side where being a conservative now is the worst possible thing you could ever do on campus to the point where you're probably not going to be able to even speak on many campuses, first in the US, and I hasten to say I think it is coming, if it hasn't already, coming to Canada. And yes, I'm on the right wing spectrum of probably this, this table, this panel, even though they seated me on the left. I guess I'm on your right. Um, but it's the tenor of the debate that bothers me, the tenor of the debate that concerns me. So I want to spend most of the time answering questions and engaging. What I will say in terms of solutions, if I can put it that way, uh, if I can humbly suggest this, I read the National Post and I read the Toronto Star. I will watch anything and everything I've got. I've got JDL people on my Facebook page, and I've got Bernie Farber on my Facebook page, okay? And if you go to my Facebook page, people are butting heads all the time, often with me in the middle, uh, oftentimes I'm the instigator, oftentimes I'm the responder. But it's having the ability, the willingness, uh, not to live in an echo chamber where all you wanna look at and all you wanna discuss and all you wanna debate and all you wanna hear is people who more or less agree with you. You need to be prepared to look at those other perspectives. Sometimes you're gonna actually find that you're wrong if you're honest with yourself and change your opinion. But even if you don't do that, at least you're going to see there's relevance. There are other people who think diametrically opposed to myself. And it's not one or two, it's lots of them on every opinion. And as a result of that, you need to be able to understand it will strengthen your own fortitude in the opinions that you have, or possibly even, as I say, change or erode those opinions. So you can listen to the CBC, although I encourage you to listen to News Talk 1010, because that's where I am. Uh, but those are very different political perspectives. And I would recommend that you don't keep your radio, your television, your internet glued to one direction. You've got to be open to hearing all of those things. I think I'm going to stop there. I know you want to hear about the chat. Maybe it'll come up. But uh, I, I would like to engage back and forth rather than just sort of blabbing. OK. Well, thanks to, uh, thanks to all three of you for your words. And while, while you think about the questions you want to ask, I'm just going to start with one uh, for all the panelists. You were talking about the, the value, and Adir, you were talking too, about the value of dissent. What are, in all of your, in all of your perspectives, and maybe Cynthia, we'll start with you, what are the, the sort of the main do's and don'ts of when it comes to dissent? Are there any rules about how to dissent? Should there be? Do we do we uh, do we risk um, losing the ability to have conversation due to some manners of dissent, or or is it just incumbent on sort of the mainstream to accept whatever sort of dissent comes their way? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, the first thing that comes to mind here is just uh, so so just in terms of keeping things civil, uh, ground rules. So one thing would be, um, but, but I think you're actually going in a different direction, but yes, uh, dissent. So dissent would require ground rules of respect for persons and criticism of uh, not a person, but criticism of the content of their remarks, right? So, so you begin there. Not, not, not um, I dislike you, but I dislike the position you take on such and such, mm, ground rules. Uh, but then also, who, who the give and take thing, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and I th this has been a message that 
I think is a theme that has come up here, that dissent is a good thing. And dissent is, is consistent uh, with the Jewish thought and dis dissent is something that we want to nurture and respect. So mm, that's a good starting point. I guess that's to, to keep that uppermost in mind. But, but then there's the issue of who, you know, I'm a sociologist. So, and, and one of, with a critical perspective. So we're always talking about power relations. So uh, for me, it, it kind of comes down to um, who, that, we're, that we don't have an absolute level playing field, that some groups have more funding than others, some groups have more members than others. APAC had 18,000 folks out and the dissenters were 1,000. That says something. Um, who gets the to write columns, who gets to, have access to resources and, and, and community resources and networking and so on. Uh, th those resources are not evenly distributed. So it's incumbent upon us, I guess, to pay attention to that picture when we talk about give and take and uh, concessions and listening and so on. We're all embedded in power of more or less. But Cynthia, I would say, I, I don't like when we reduce it to a numbers game like that, right? Like the example you gave, APAC's got 18,000, there's 1,000 protesters. Some opinions attract more people because they're better opinions. I'm not, I'm not speaking specifically about APAC now. I mean, if we want to, we can get into that debate. But you're going to have these discussions, and you're trying to persuade people to your side. And you may succeed in persuading more people to your side. And as a result, you may succeed in persuading more funders and gain uh, authority that way. So it's not about saying dissent doesn't mean we have to have 50 people saying this and 50 people saying that. Dissent means that even if there's a thousand people saying X and one person saying Y, the thousand should hear and listen to the Y and then listen to the one. But it doesn't mean that we should be dividing those resources equally. And the one thing that I, this does bring me to the chat example to some extent, the one thing that I encourage everybody to do is when, if you feel, uh, alienated from the mainstream, if you feel that you don't have a place within one of the 30,000 acronyms that the Jewish community in this city has, uh, you can A, invent your own, but B, I don't think you're looking hard enough. I'll be honest with you. There are so many places, and they're desperate for anybody and everybody. The number of board requests I've turned down because I don't have the time, I don't have the interest, I don't have the inclination, I'm not available, go find these places. They want you. They don't know that you're out there. And so if you're not, if you're not able to have your voice heard, with all due respect, it's probably because you're not trying because you can get your voice heard. There are people who want to hear you. They want you to sit on their boards. They want you to get on their committees. They want you to be a part of that. And then you will influence the discussion within the mainstream. Uh, our, that's, I mean, ultimately what Leroux Dubé wanted to do was not just be the dissenter for the sake of being dissent, I don't think. Maybe she wanted to do that in her office to me on that one day. But I think she wanted to accomplish what she's accomplished, which is to see dissenting judgments become the majority. And you don't do that from the outside. You do that from the inside. I would just add one, I think one element that, that is essential to dissent and also will highly raise the, the, the chance of success in, in changing the, um, the opinions of, of the majority or the institution is providing an alternative. I think there, uh, that without providing an alternative by just saying I disagree with the way uh, that you're doing this or, or the position that you take um, without uh, providing uh, an out, a second way or a third way uh, or an alternative um, it can be challenging because then you reach some sort of uh, some sort of block in the middle. So I would say that providing an alternative is really important. 
Uh, all right. I think we're going to now uh, come around with microphones. If you have a question, raise your hand. I'd ask, uh, we'd appreciate if you keep your questions short and to the point and that there be some sort of question in your question as well. <laughs> okay, there we go. And also please tell us your name. Hi there, uh, my name is Devin Spear and I'm on the board of JSpace Canada. It's good to be with you all. And my question is, is we've had a lot of talk about in the tent or outside of the tent, but we've also heard the word big tent. When have you seen big tent done effectively uh, the most in an organizational context? Do you want to start there? I, so, I mean, look, this is my bias. I was on the board. I was the chair of, of this organization for, uh, for two years, just finishing off my term there, uh, which is Hillel. And maybe not everybody's going to agree, but at, at Hillel, Ontario, uh, we have had many very difficult debates about you know, how big can this tent be because by definition a tent still has, if not walls, if we're talking about the Abrahamic tent, right? Abraham had his tent open on all sides, but it's still a roof that didn't extend to infinity. Not everybody could be under the roof of that tent, but you wanted everybody to at least be able to come in without having to knock on the door. And so the example I always give with, with Hillel is you can disagree with the mainstream, if I can put it that way, opinion on Israel, for example, that Hillel might take. But you may be completely on all fours with Hillel's Tikkun Olam program in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And so why would you take yourself out of Hillel and say, I will never participate in a Shabbat dinner, or I will never participate in the Ashkenazi festival, or I will never participate in arts and culture because this is an organization that's supposed to BDS and I'm in favor of BDS. Uh, and equally, Hillel, did not, and in my view, never should, tell somebody who takes a position that is against one of their views somewhere else, you're not welcome at Shabbat dinner because you take this political position. You're not welcome at our arts and culture day because you take this position. You're welcome to anything and everything. We're still going to disagree, but you're welcome to come to anything and everything. Let's find the points upon which we do agree. So I'm going to also give a Hillel example. We were both there. Because uh, we were both there, and I think Hillel, while an imperfect uh, big tent, uh, it is one of the one of the best structured big tents uh, that I've had the experience of, of working for and, and knowing in general. Um, and I will, I'll shy away from Israel to something that's less of an acute issue. We had, uh, at, uh, at some point, several students who, who approached us and said that Hillel is not a, a safe space for uh, a Jews of color or uh, Jews of non-binary uh, gender. Uh, and this wasn't something that was explicit at Hillel, but uh, if you looked at some of the pictures, uh, if you looked at some of the language, uh, it naively did not have anything that, uh, that provided space to or that was, uh, was um, promoted in inclusion. Uh, and within uh, a few months of uh, discussion, there was a full-fledged uh, equity uh, subcommittee on every uh, campus. Uh, and these are students that uh, are studying, uh, you know, studying these things, and and they're experts on uh, how to provide the most inclusive uh, space possible. Uh, and that's a way that the I think the tent was just um, not just expanded, but became stronger as a whole. Yeah. So here's the voice of the dissenter. Huh? Uh, you know. What do you think would happen? Uh, great ideas, and, and, and I, I, I hope that they're implemented effectively um, uh, here, and, and great sort of sympathies there. What do you think would happen, though, 
if an anti-Zionist approached a board of one of these Jewish organizations and says, hey there, I want to sit on your board. And you could say, well, you know, on principle, of course, they can, they can join. But exclusion doesn't happen like looking you in the face and saying, I don't think so, you're anti-Zionist. Exclusion happens in subtle ways. It happens in ways that blame the victim. It happens in ways that um, deny uh, the principle of the thing. So it's more than opinion. It's more than like, oh, I got my opinion and I belong in, I, I think there was another thing here, I belong to another category or another team, um, you know, and, and I'm not thinking for myself or whatever it is. Um, alienation has got a long career. And it, and it works in subtle ways, as all forms of exclusion do. And it, it will never be. I mean, one of the ways that power works is it's never in your face, right? There's other ways of doing this work. And people who are on the outside know it and feel it. And they're not about to take on the risk of entering a room or a congregation or any other organization saying, hey there, I want in. I'm a team of one. And, I'm, and, um, and there's all of you. And I mean, that's extraordinarily difficult. And I wouldn't advise anybody to do it. Um, um, yeah, the message of you're not welcome is uh, delivered in many ways that are not articulated. Are there any questions right now in the audience? Sorry, if I could just oh, add sorry. one thing. I think the it's certainly challenging to be a team of one entering, you know, a team of a thousand or a hundred or even ten strong-minded, um, you know, people in in a room. Um, at the same time, I also think that that has the greatest reward because the, the next person after the 10 to have uh, an opinion or an idea or position that's just marginally different might make a difference, might not. But that one person who is able to uh, give the most compelling argument and uh, risk you know, losing face or maybe even being excluded, uh, if they're able to implement change, I think that's the, that's the greatest reward that there is. It's another Pesach story, right? When we're heading to the, to the Red Sea, you're fleeing from the Egyptians, the sea is there, uh, the army is coming up behind, everybody stops, even though God's told them you're going to take them out of Egypt, uh, and nobody wants to step up until one guy named Nachshon bin Aminadav steps into the water, and the waters don't split. And he steps further into the water, and the water doesn't split. And he's up to his neck, says the Midrash, until the waters finally do split. And then everybody follows him through. Question. We have a question right here. Sure. Um, oh, so you already have a microphone. Sorry. Okay. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, we'll get. We'll get to you next. Okay. Thank. Thank you all for coming. Um, I. I just wanted to, and this is open for anyone's use, but I just wanted to touch on a couple of points that Cynthia has raised. Um, and specifically, I'm. I'm just wondering, the. The pattern that I've seen more is not necessarily that doors are closed for highly motivated Jews who don't necessarily. Um, not support certain political positions on Israel. What I have seen more common is some Jews who uh, don't agree with either the dominant discussion at a Passover Seder or a Shabbat dinner, or maybe the views of, say, the synagogue or something like that. And those Jews, or, or even majority opinion among their friend group, and how those Jews can disassociate themselves, in part what you're attributing, I think, to alienation and, and not a sense that they're being included. And, but I, when I, I'm just, in my life working on campus and in other sort of, in Jewish community generally, I've sort of always seen a, a fairly open atmosphere when it comes to putting views forward. I think if you went to a Hillel event, 
you know, J Street is welcome there. You know, there is, I think, a, a rather big tent. But I'm just wondering, for those Jews who, who do find that, you know what, they don't agree with the majority in the Jewish community on certain issues with regards to Israel, whether it's for maybe soft support for Israel all the way to hardcore anti-Zionism, is there room along the lines uh, of what, sorry, I forgot your name, what you were saying earlier, um, where Jews can, even those Jews can sort of disagree, still disagree with the overall position of either a synagogue or a majority community, but at the same time still be involved and not detach themselves entirely. Because I think something that, that I find a little bit problematic with some of the things that you've put forward even today is this notion that you know, we need equal presentation for all views and that we need equal, at the end of the day, the, Jewish, the majority of the Jewish community is probably going to have a stance dissimilar from yours. And is there a bit of a back and forth where it's incumbent upon a minority to kind of accept that to a point and still put forward its own views, but understand that it doesn't have to leave the tribe in order to, just because a majority may have a different perspective. So the problem with this, thank you though, the problem with this is that um, it puts the burden on the minority group to go in and to even on an individual basis to be a hero or to turn things around or to convince everybody else of their perspective. And unless you have not been in that position, it's hard to see how that's not an unreasonable agenda, you know. No, because it's much easier if you've got a group, right? And, and I'll also say this. Remember that it's 32% of millennials. This is in the States. I don't know what the figures in Canada are. But mm, let's say it's roughly in that. We're not talking about a little group. We're talking about people who have already left. So who are non-religious, yes, but, and I, well, let's get that back. I think the question I had when I saw the slide, just as you're pulling it up, I mean, I'm very familiar with the Pew study. Those of us who have been at Hill and UJA and such, I mean, like anybody in sort of official Jewish capacity is terrified of the, of the findings in the Pew study because it seems to indicate uh, a wholesale rejection of, of large mainstream Judaism, right? That people are leaving and not sticking around. I, I think it's a bit of a chicken and egg question, though. I've certainly had that question a lot about, is it mainstream Judaism pushing people away, or are these people who were never interested in being a part of it and changing the position of mainstream Judaism doesn't bring people back? I, I frankly question vocally out front if we had a, a very liberal, progressive, left-wing, whatever silo you want to you want to use to describe it would these Jews come back and say ah that's the organization I want to stand up uh, and be a part of and that's the school I want to create and that's the synagogue I want I don't think so I, I they, they could find a synagogue like that today if they wanted to but they're not going to it they could find a school like that today if they wanted to but they're not they could be president of a, an organization like that today if they wanted to but they're not which doesn't doesn't remove our responsibility to find a way to engage those people but I think it does say that the answer isn't to change mainstream Jewish perspective on political questions. It's to say, how can we engage people even when we disagree? Yeah, but it's also to remove the uh, impact. There's an impact. There's a cost. It's emotional. It's real uh, of exclusion. It's not just like saying, oh, let's have a respectful conversation about this, and then I'll feel more comfortable coming. There, there's, you know, Jews who support the BDS movement are banned from going to Israel. There's a very material 
consequence. There, there's a material consequence for people who take positions of anti-Zionism and BDS on the Jewish people and on Israel too, I would say. A very real consequence that if those positions yes. become mainstream, they are, in my respectful view, extraordinarily dangerous to the Jewish people. Right. Uh, well, that, that could be your view. But what I'm saying is that it, it's much more than just saying, well, you know, if, if dissenters wanted to make their way in, they could. Okay, uh, you've been you've been waiting patiently, so let's get to your question. Um, and uh, tell us tell us your name, please. Is this on? Okay. Is this on? okay? It's okay. You know we can hear you. It should be all right. Okay. Um, so my name is Maya. Um, so I'm a queer Soviet communist Jew, and I'm saying these um, categories not because I'm categorizing myself, but because for my entire life I was told that it was bad to categorize myself because I was alienated for these identities. So for me to reclaim them is not to put me myself in a category, but it is to acknowledge the like. To it's like to reclaim my forms of like my forms of dissent, my own opinions, like not even to categorize them as dissent. And I'm not gonna worry about making my question short because I'm here to take up the space that I deserve. So I just had a lot of problems with um, this event today and I'm gonna say them. For one, there's um, three participants, two of whom are over the age of 35, so I don't understand how that has to do with like young Jewish opinions. One of whom is talking about some old like judge that is has no relevance to my life, I'm sorry. Um, to treat the issues at hand in the Jewish community as an issue of categorization rather than to talk about power structures, to talk about imperialism and um, hegemony and like things like that. No, I'm, I see you're like moving to your microphone, but I'm just gonna keep talking. Um, like that's, that's ignorant, that's incomprehensive. Um, and I have no problem like navigating my way through Hillel, um, even if like I don't believe in free market um, with what you're talking about, a free market of ideas. Um, the thing is just that like, when you're talking about um, Hillel becoming more progressive, you still put pressure on the Mizrahi Jews and the non-binary Jews to make the change. That wasn't Hillel's thing. Um, Hillel works to defund and disrupt pro-Palestinian work. And honestly, like Judaism is always changing. Judaism is not the same thing as it was millennia ago. Judaism w is not gonna ha look the same in the next century and it's not gonna be a bad thing. So like, <laughs> I'm sorry, like you're not a young Jew, so like, I'm like, it is what it is. Like, um, there's like a lot of reasons why someone would not want to participate in Hillel. One of the reasons was it's a fundamentally racist institution and participating in it for some people is condoning that. So like, that's why I resist certain things with Hillel, but like still interact with Hillel. Um, so like, yeah, I, I'm here to like, to, to, to dissent. Um, I don't believe that there's any kind of loss in free speech. Um, I think that conservatives have and will always have power. Um, liberals um, also like d uh, collaborate with conservatives, so like that's not a problem. Um, like I don't need to abandon categories. So my questions are: What is the purpose of this? Um, how does this actually like uh, uplift dissent? Uh, because like the furthest left person is actually just like like uh, with all due respect, like doctor, um, you're acknowledging that ideology and power structures exist, but like you're not that far left um, and the furthest right people are pro-Israel and, um, and are like self-identified conservatives. So what are the purpose? How does this actually like work to uplift dissent and like engage the Jewish community? Like why, why aren't people from TRAFE here um, or the independent Jewish voices? Why are there like two older folks when this is supposed to be for young Jews? Um, yeah, I guess that's mostly what I have to say. I'm not going to be able to change your opinion, but like I'm just here to take up the space. Okay. 
Are there any other questions? You can respond to that if you want to. I uh, there wasn't really. Uh, I, I asked I questions. I asked the questions does about anybody, why you Does anybody want to respond? So thank you for your comments. That was. Um, I don't know. I, I can't do much about the fact that I'm 42 said. years old. Um, no, it, 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 that's the the point of the discussion. I, I'm not sure how Mosaic chose uh, the specific people who are here today. Would it be, would it have been more interesting or more engaging to have people who are even further apart politically than perhaps the three of us are? Uh, maybe I, th I think there's a pretty interesting diversity of opinion here. Uh, it certainly, could have been helpful to have people of different uh, age groups if you think that would have made that much of a difference. I think there are millennials who think the way I think, and there are millennials who think diametrically opposed to how I think. I don't know that age is the determining factor uh, of a person's political opinion any more than almost anything else is. I mean, we are products of a thousand or a million different factors that uh, that form our opinion and debate. Uh, I'm glad to hear that even though Hill is racist to you, you still participate and interact. That's, is, I mean, that's exactly, I think, the goal that I was pushing towards, which is people can say, I diametrically disagree with you on X, but I'm with you on Y, so let's work on Y. Uh, right. What's wrong with that? Yeah, so I just want to echo that. I think that the fact that you came here to uh, to take the space and, and uh, you know provide your feedback uh, just goes to, to show the importance of dissent and um, and engaging with something even when you, you're really opposed to, uh, to its fundamental uh, ideas. But um, I think it also shows the, uh, what I was talking about before, that the tent can never be infinitely big or it can never be big enough because if we were to look at issue by issue, I think uh, w between um, Ed and Cynthia, you would find a really significant gap um, in uh, opinions and positions. Uh, but even if we were to take someone from further right and then also someone from further left, there will always be that person in the next margin. There will always be somebody who is even more to the left or somebody that is even more uh, to the right. And that's a challenge that uh, I think everybody uh, here that works for a Jewish institution, um, we all face that challenge. Uh, I, I want to ask a question, actually, sorry, sort of uh, leading from your, your comments and your questions. We've spoken here, and, and your comments as well uh, allude to this, we've spoken a lot about dissent, and it seems to me we're talking about it as, uh, as a left-wing ideal, a left-wing political ideal. But I see this all the time, and I'm sure, I'm sure everybody up here also sees it. There is a significant and very strong right-wing uh, dissent movement as well. So I'm wondering, from the three of you, and maybe we'll start with Ed, are there differences between left left dissent and right dissent? Is one right and one wrong? Uh, do they do they take do they take a, do do they look different? Do they talk different? Or are we talk, you know, or is dissent sort of one large tangent in and of itself? Oh, sorry, just before you answer, I just wanted to say that this will be our last question before we move on Ooh. to the breakouts. Oh, you only took the last question, but there'll be breakouts. So I mean. I, this is going to bother a lot of people probably, but in many respects, I think dissent on the left and the right is similar. In one respect that I think at least today, and I, I put that classification very importantly because I don't know that it's always been, it certainly hasn't always been true and I don't know that it always will be true, but at least today, there's uh, a lot of indication that dissent on the left is more overtly violent than dissent on the right. Uh, and I think we're seeing that, that where, where right-wingers dissent, and there are exceptions, of course, to this, but where you see conservative dissent and right-wing dissent, uh, there are attempts to shut down speech, but they tend to be nonviolent about that. Where you see left-wing dissent, it is at least as radical, if not more radical, uh, than right-wing dissent, where people like Ann Coulter 
Mila Yiannopoulos, again, not, not people who I ascribe to my own political ideology, but are almost incapable of even having an opportunity to speak, at least on campus. Certainly, they have plenty of space for them on Fox News, but all the more reason why I would encourage people, you may hate Fox, watch Fox sometimes, watch CNN sometimes. I think you'd be fascinated. I have the two on speed dial on my radio flipping between them because it's completely diametrically opposed views, and America in particular is a country that is split virtually 50-50. And so dissent, I, I don't even know what, how we define dissent when 50% of the country is the minority and 50% of the country is the minority. So I would, I would push back and disagree with that a little bit. I think if you go far enough to either um, margin, you will find, um, away from the liberal uh, sort of center, you will find um, a propensity for, for uh, violence. Um, you know, there's the, in, that, in that same protest, I think there were members of the JDL uh, who caused some problems there. Uh, so for sure there's violence on... Uh, arrested for causing problems. Yeah. Violence. Yeah. Um, and I think there, there are some things that are, that are very, very different when it comes to dissenters from the left and the right. They speak completely different languages. Um, I know because I, I receive emails... Hate uh, mail from both sides? Hate mail. I wouldn't say... Sometimes it's hate mail uh, from uh, both sides. And uh, I'm 100% sure that, Bernie, during your time... Uh, you I still do. Uh, you still, I, I write you those still to do. Um, they're they're different, um, and and that's fine, right? So so we get we get criticism from uh, from the right, we get criticism from the left. We say uh, in our office that if we uh, if we have this pleased the right side and the left side of our community in the same day, then we've done our job properly. Um, I think, like I said before, the one thing that brings together uh, the majority of unhealthy criticism is the lack of alternative. I think there are, you know, if we're going to take the right, for example, we get emails about, well, you should just stand up and uh, criticize the government for taking this position and, uh, you know, call out this uh, minister or this member of parliament or provincial parliament for doing that without actually providing any sort of change or recommendation uh, to them. And in effect, if we were to do that, that would just ruin the relationship and not actually enable us to get any change. Uh, we get the same thing from the left. So there are certainly things that make them very, very different. Uh, the way they perceive the world is very different by definition, uh, but that's the one thing that brings them together. Um, I don't know, I, my, the, the computer is giving me one of these whirly, uh, <laughs> colorful things here, so I can't get back to the, on, on the Mac, I can't get back to the slide, but, uh, but you know, the first thing, of course, I'm thinking of is that slide that we saw here. A, white supremacists have been amassing at City Hall about, just about every weekend since m March 4th, and uh, this is not in the press. Uh, Rebel media is out there, um, if you want to call that the press, but, um, uh, and, and, they're, and they're getting better at mobilizing. And, uh, and then groups who fight for human rights and religious freedoms are amassing and, and coming out earlier and, and there's, they try to, are trying to um, uh, respond to that and, and uh, fight for what is right. So, um, yeah, so, so the, and there's a great readiness on the part of folks like the, the JDL to ignore the Holocaust and, and to, uh, to work in cahoots with soldiers of Odin. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. Um, and what is the common enemy? The common enemy is Muslims. So those, there, there are those of us who, who see that our interests, if we're interested in human dignity, if we're interested in religious freedom, if we're interested in democracy, if we're interested in um, equity, 
and in inclusion, and we take those principles seriously. I mean, to me, there's really only one way forward, and that is together. Agreed. Uh, all right. Uh, I want to thank our panelists, and I uh, thank you for your questions and for listening to us. And now I think we'll break off into groups, and we'll hear more about that from Allie. Yes. So we're going to divide you all into three groups. Um, two of you, two groups will be going into the gallery, and one group will stay here. Um, so we'll divide you vertically here. Um, and I'd say from the third row up, we'll stay here. And these three rows and these three rows will also be two groups that will go into the gallery. And yeah. All right, let's have one more round of applause for the panelists. <laughs> Yes, then after that, we will meet back here. And since we're a bit behind schedule, let's say at um, 7 7.50, we'll meet back here. So if you're going to the gallery, you want to follow me? Um, uh, Jivan Ahila, why don't you come with me? Melissa, why don't you stay here, since that's kind of how we're divided anyways. You'll come with me to the gallery. dialogue and uh, we learned many things today in terms of what we're going to do next time and how to do it better and um, uh, where to go and how to encourage uh, discussion. Um, I was personally very pleased with everything that went on here, opened my eyes uh, on, on a number of occasions just listening to the dialogue back and forth and uh, it was nothing short of impressive really so thank you for being leaders in many ways and and being here and, and, and opening the gates. There is, I believe, an audio. Um, this is the, the first part of it was recorded. Um, we will have it up on our website. That's mosaicinstitute.ca as soon as we get it. So please feel free to visit. And we'll probably, you'll probably, for those of you who follow me either on Facebook or on Twitter, uh, you will see me announce it. And if you don't follow me on Twitter when you get home today, Bernie at Bernie Farber. Uh, or Mosaic, the Mosaic Institute, uh, either on Facebook or Twitter. I pretty well allow anybody on my Facebook. Uh, Cynthia and I were just talking about this. But now when I do family stuff, I have a separate list for them because my wife wouldn't put up with that anymore. So, uh, But on, in terms of the issues that are discussed, it's a very open dialogue. The only thing I ask is that you be civil. So again, thank you for being here, and thanks again to the Koffler Center. Was this a good space to to feel comfortable in terms of dialogue? Just did, yeah. Really? Because there was just such an opportunity to learn about where people came from, the stories, what their background was that they brought in. And beginning, I think, with that place of knowing each other made such a difference. And I think we walked away with a different feeling. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And listen, I know, uh, I mean, I've been around for a long time. So I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of, a, of an open book in terms of speaking my mind. But that comes with, you know, my gray hair and everything that goes with it. 
when I was in university, it's, it's a little bit different, right? I mean, some, sometimes it's difficult to speak your mind, especially if you don't feel that you're going to be heard or understood or if you're going to be on, on, on very much the opposite side of the issue. So there was really, uh, and excuse me for taking a couple extra minutes to explain this, but there really was, there was a question about, you know, how did we put this together? Um, there is a steering committee that I have nothing to do with. I, I'll be very honest with you. The steering committee, you know, works on these things, and this was a decision. I, and I think in the long run it was a, it was a pretty good group uh, in terms of at least getting the issues out there. The idea of having younger, uh, um, uh, even people with more, uh, how should I put this, uh, more radical and more uh, direct views is something I think that the steering committee will, will, will wrestle with. Um, so Maya that, that uh, spoke out with such great passion and such great uh, concern um, really moved me uh, to uh, almost to tears, to be honest with you, because I, I, I heard what you had to say. And uh, while I, I may not come from where you come from, I certainly understand wh what you're saying and how difficult that was to say. So I, I really just wanted to acknowledge the fact that you did that was, was really remarkable. Um, that said, the next session, um, what, policy, what policy issues should drive uh, political engagement? That's our uh, next session. I don't know if we have an actual date for it yet, but it will come out shortly. Do we have a date? End of May. End of May. Okay, so just watch. Um, so we're looking at issues like identity policy and politics, Canadian jury triangle, if you will, Canadian foreign policy, issues around human rights and politics and involvement in political life, international affairs. It's going to be a heavy menu of, of discussion about things that are not necessarily discussed, especially the human rights issue, um, which is, as you know, something I feel very strongly about, and I think something that the Jewish community has uh, sadly lost in the last, certainly in the last five or 10 years. We used to be leaders in the human rights movement, and now we're not even followers. So lots of discussion to be had there. So I will close now, because a lot of you must be hungry, and you want to get to your food, as I do. Uh, so again, I want to thank you for being here, and I want to thank you for your engagement, and I want to thank you for teaching me many lessons that we are going to take back and uh, just continue on with this great experiment of inter-Jewish dialogue. Thank you all very much. <coughs> thank you. Feedback, yes. Yeah, there will be uh, everybody who registered will get a feedback form, and believe me, we take those very seriously. If you didn't register and wanted to give feedback, you can leave your email with Ali on your way out.